Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg and joined by Cameron McCormick. And our guest for the day is 2005 U.S. Amateur Champion, Ryder Cupper, three-time winner on the European Tour, and just coming off a third-place finish in Germany at the BMW International, Eduardo Molinari. Eduardo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. a great honor. Absolutely. And, and just to add a little bit of color to the accolades, we've had an opportunity to have dinner a few times while at events. And every time we end up getting into a conversation where I think to myself, I really wish we had a microphone and we're recording this. So we'll do our best to get into some of those topics. Eduardo is without a doubt, one of the brightest people in all of golf, cut very much from the same cloth as us at Altus. And that I think that you do a really good job of leaving no stone unturned and your continuous quest for improvement, even at the highest level. So you're always trying to find a way to earn an edge. And I think those are the topics that we really want to get into. And because there's a lot that we want to cover, let's just jump in just to get kind of give a a little bit of background. Let's start with your origin story. Help us understand your early involvement with golf, because obviously it's an interesting and unique one in that you have a brother that also ended up being a high performer. So what were the early days in golf involvement for you? Well, we started playing when we were um, five, six years old with mom and dad. They were both quite good amateur golfers. They were like seven, eight handicap. We started because they, they would go to play with friends at the weekend at the golf club. And so they would just drag us along. And uh, we got quite lucky because the, they were members in like a country club. So we would go there on the weekends and just uh, spend a lot of time outdoors playing golf, playing soccer going to the swimming pool, just having fun with friends uh, our age between, you know, it was a quite a large group of kids all between six and 10, 11 years old. And uh, with some of them, we're still quite good friends now, even if they're not professional golfers, they, they decided to go down other path, but we, we still have some relationship with some of them. Yeah. Would that have been a unique or different kind of environment because it's my understanding and kind of talking to Andrea and talking to some of the other Italians, like Andrea's experience was very different and growing up in a part of Italy where he was kind of the only golfer among his friends and he was a little isolated in that everyone else was playing soccer or other sports. It, was it unique that you were just in a pocket or in an area where you had other peers your age that were also interested in golf? Yeah, I think uh, in a way we were isolated as well because uh, when you go to school at that age, if you're in a class of 20, 25 kids, there's probably one or two at the best playing golf. So, you know, kids in Italy, they, they all play football. There's, right. uh, there's, no, there's no way around it. But the, the strange thing is that at, the, at that golf club in particular, there was this big group of kids. So we could, uh, you know, we were not school friends or anything. We just see them Saturday, Sunday at the golf course. And then we would just play nine holes, play soccer, just play games like every kids do. So I think in that regard, we got quite lucky because most of the clubs, especially like the, the most prestigious clubs in Italy, like one where, where we grew up, they, they don't have a big group of kids. Right. They just have uh, senior members and you know older people. But it was a bit of a unique situation in that, that regard. At what stage in those early years did formal coaching, formal instruction become part of your experience of getting better at golf? Uh, we started uh, being in the junior program at that golf club, I think when we were eight, nine years old. But that, wasn't, that only involved a couple of hours uh, on Saturday, a couple of hours on Sunday. And I mean, it's a, it's a couple of hours, but like 20 kids with one or two PGA pros. Yep. So it wasn't really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it golf instruction. It was just a... Some kind of, uh, it was more like a babysitting 
and you know more than than golf coaching yeah and then as uh, as we grew up probably by the time we were 10 11 we started to play a little bit better a little bit more we added maybe one afternoon during the week yeah. where we could get you know a little bit of golf lessons it was just a, a very gradual thing i mean until until i was uh, 20 19 20 years old i was only playing saturday sunday and wednesday afternoon Goodness. So I wasn't playing much golf at all. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player. And that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. You just mentioned something very interesting there that you weren't playing a high volume every day of the week until age kind of 18, 19, 20. And we want to come back to that. I really want to circle back and understand what it was that you were doing that allowed you such great success when you did start playing a lot. But reflect back on the earlier experiences of being a, a young kid playing golf with 20 others around you. Did you stand out as being exceptional, at least from your own perspective and your brother's perspective? I don't remember so. Not Francesco nor I, we never won an Italian junior or under 16, under 14 championship for, uh, I think, forever. I, I never, my first Italian championship, I was, I think, 20 or 21. So I wasn't particularly good growing up as a kid. Obviously, we were at a big disadvantage because we were going to school and all the, all the good kids were like the son of PGA pros who would play golf uh, 10, 12 hours a day when they were 12 or 13 years old. So obviously you're going to be very, very good at that age. But then funny enough, we were the only one who, who made it through to the PGA to, to the European tour. And they, you know, they never improved that at some point. Yeah. The expression that comes to mind is early ripe, early rotten. And oftentimes you get, particularly over here yeah. in the United States, I think, as you know, it, when there's such an emphasis placed on exemplifying yourself. So you get exposed to the whole recruiting engine identified by college coaches as exceptional. And then you you might get um, a, a commitment or at least the attention of those college coaches, but your experience is something different. So you want to understand that. What was it that you were therefore doing through your teenage years that allowed you at 18, 19 years old to start playing more golf and playing really good golf? Well, I think, um, uh... Funny enough, I mean, going to school, going to college in Italy, in a way, helped a lot because we were going in a in a proper school where you had to, you know, study a few hours every day. So we didn't have much time for golf when we were 15, 16. Mm -hmm. So in one way, we learned to focus a lot on those. I remember we always had uh, two hours on Wednesday afternoon at the golf course with the PGA Pro. And that was my only two hours during the week apart from Saturday, Sunday. So those two hours, I really tried to focus as much as I could and try to get in as much as I could. While, you know, other kids that were at the golf course every afternoon, they were, you know, just looking around and right. maybe going to play a few holes and they weren't, they weren't as focused. And then when we were, when I started to go to college, so when I was 19, 20, 19, 
I had a little bit more time. So I had, instead of one afternoon, I probably had two or three. And all of a sudden, it felt like I had the whole time, all the time in the world to, to improve my golf. Because those two hours became six or eight. So all of a sudden, I could work on my long game. I could work on my short game one day. I could work on my putting the other day. But it was all very intense and very focused. Speak a little bit to the support that you have or that you had around you during that time, because we talk a lot about like nature versus nurture. And I think you're a very interesting person to have that conversation with because you come from a household and an environment that produced not just one, but two high performing players. And so, but at the same time, there do seem to be real like nature differences between you and your brother, just personality wise or how you approach or, or what your strengths are as players. So whether that be mom or dad or the environment at the club, what do you think? Because we, we do have a lot of parents that are listening and they're trying their hardest to produce a, a one high performer, right? So your parents did something right. So what was it about that support that you feel like nurtured the kind of high performers that you are now? Our parents were uh, extremely good at uh, not forcing us to play golf. So they were just bringing us to the golf course and, you know, they couldn't care less whether we played golf, whether we stayed at the swimming pool, whether we played football, especially when we were kids. They were just, you know, letting us do whatever we wanted, whatever we wanted to have fun with. And, uh, and even growing up, I remember when we started playing a little bit more seriously, when we were 13, 14 years old, and we were you know, playing comp little competition, junior competitions around Italy, they never really forced us to play or said, oh, you have to go there and play well. And, and any time we played poorly, it was like, you know, the most normal thing in the world. I mean, <laughs> I never, they, they never, I, I mean, in a way they were almost happier when, when we played poorly because they said, oh, you know, you can go back, you can work on this, you can, you can improve if you want. And then if you don't enjoy it, you can just do something else. Which I think it's uh, it was a, a fantastic uh, light motif throughout our junior years, and then even even growing up. I mean, I remember obviously when we were eighteen, nineteen, all the kids our age were starting to turn pro. They wanted to turn pro and so on. And both our parents said, "No, no, no, hang on a second. You go to college first. You take a degree in Italy, like a, you know, a proper degree, and then once you got your degree, you can turn pro. You can." go work in a bank, you can go work in a butcher shop, you do whatever you want. But first of all, you have to take a degree just to show you have, have a second option. Because I think it's, and that helped in the, in the beginning because it's so much easier to play golf knowing that if you're not going to be successful, you have a, a, a way out. While so many other kids at 14, 15, they start to play golf 10 hours a day. Mm -hmm. They pretty much stop studying. And then by the time they're 20, 21, all of a sudden, one day they shoot 75 and they want to commit suicide right. because they said, oh, if I don't make it in golf, then what I'm going to do? The consequence is so much more severe. So if in the yeah. absence of a mom and dad that are pushing you towards you have to play well, that are trying to create motivation, it sounds yeah. like you and both your brother had a lot of that self-drive, that intrinsic motivation. And I'm assuming yeah. that you guys pushed each other. So speak a little bit to the role of competitiveness and kind of spurring on some of that motivation that you had in that drive. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, that was another, you know, lucky thing to have a, a brother a very similar age. It's only, it's less than two years between us. And uh, Francesco growing up was always a little bit stronger as a kid than, than myself. So he was younger, but he was stronger. So at the end of the day, we were playing 
at a very similar level already when we were 11, 12 years old. And I remember pretty much every weekend playing nine holes against him, chipping competition, putting competition, whatever it was. It was, uh, it was obviously very competitive. No one wanted to lose. Right. But at the end of the day, it helped us a lot to, you know, keep the passion going, keep the, the fight going and, and, you know, just improve day in, day out. To speak to that improvement, and this goes back to a comment that you made a few minutes earlier, your time was allocated to a variety of other things away from golf. You had interests aside mm-hmm. from being the best golfer that you could possibly be, even though you still had the desire to improve your golf skills. How did you make the two hours per week, or maybe a little bit more than that, work like it was eight hours? How did you find that the, the, the efficiencies particularly when you're um, adolescents and, and maybe you haven't learned the necessary lessons. Were there lessons that your parents passed on? Can you give us some, some wisdom that came out of how you made your practice efficient and effective at that age? You know, I, I don't, to be honest, I don't remember much. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I remember was that those two hours, I just see the bucket of balls in front of me and I was just hitting balls after ball after ball while I, I saw other kids going to the to the bar to the restaurant to get an ice cream then coming back then going to watch a cartoon or something then going back mm-hmm. while uh, francesco and i were just you know those two hours were just golf yeah 100 percent. So, so by necessity no i mean back then there were no yeah yeah by and back then you had no mobile phones no, no, no nothing yeah so let's move a little bit into so away from kind of early development and now entering what your 14th year of professional golf Yes. Yeah. So, so 14 years comes with lots of wisdom and experience. And in my kind of what my perception has mm-hmm. been and spending time around you and the other Italians that are on the European tour is that 14 years is a lot of experience. They, you seem to take the role of kind of the experienced veteran who others are looking to for a little bit of that wisdom. Would you feel like that is that an accurate perception that I have? Yeah, I would say in a way, yes. I think uh, some guys are uh, relying on myself more than others. But, you know, if someone asks me a question or if someone needs help, I'm, I'm very happy to to try and help them. Because when, when I first came out, I remember it was pretty much Francesco, myself, and maybe one or two others. And it's very easy to feel a little bit lost when, when you first come out on tour. It's all... It's new courses, it's new places, it's, uh, you don't know where to stay in the hotel, restaurants, nothing. Right. So when someone asks for help, I, I quite like and enjoy to, to try and, and be helpful as much as I can. Yeah, so, and again, going back to the longevity that you have, I guess, the 14 years that you have is in that 14 years are going to be periods where, you know, form ebbs and flows. You've also had injuries, and, and Cameron and I talk a lot about adversity and how certain mm-hmm. players will react to challenges and that being one yeah. of their biggest separators. So if we could dig into some moments, whether they be challenges or just, I know that a couple injuries had you, you know, out of golf mm-hmm. for a little while, kind of, if you can yeah. identify something that's unique or something that was helpful and how you responded, because as people listen to these podcasts, developing that kind of library of, of hearing good experiences of how others react, I think is, is probably one of the most valuable things that we can offer. Well, it's, uh, I've had pretty much all. So I've had, uh, as you said, I've had injuries. I've had a bad spell of form. I had uh, fantastic spells of form. I, you know, it was a very up and down career and, and it still is. But uh, I think, uh, you know, the best and worst moments were 
in a way the I remember in 2007 I got my card from Challenge Tour. I played in on the European Tour in 2008 and I lost my card. And uh, at the end of that season, I was working with a guy that I still work now back home, an Italian guy who's the same PGA coach that grew up, uh, Francesco and myself, golfing-wise. Yeah. And uh, I remember sitting down with him and he said to me, you know what, you just all you can hit is this big, high push draw, which becomes a block sometimes and a snap hook the other times. And he said, I think this winter we should just work on, on working the ball from, right, from left to right. And I was obviously, you know, just lost my card. I was a bit down. I said, okay, right, but let's do this. Let's try this. And it was the, the best thing I ever did because then I, you know, I spent literally three times in the, uh, three months in the winter at home hitting left to right, left to right, left to right, every shot. And then I got to play Challenge Tour the next year. And sure enough, the first tournament in Colombia, the first hole is a three iron, nine iron without a bounce left. So all of a sudden, I had to start the ball in, towards the out of bounds and making sure that it cut back on the fairway. So, and I still remember to this day the feeling of standing on the first day, the first day, and I thought, right, I practiced for three months left to right. We got to be able to hit the shot, and I aimed just just inside the out of bounds and cut this three iron back in play. And then that year was probably, I think, even today, that year on Challenge Tour is the best uh, season I've ever had because I. You know, I, I broke uh, pretty much every, every any any record that can be broken on the Challenge Tour. I made so much money that year on the Challenge Tour, to give you an idea, that I would have kept my card on the European <laughs> Tour with, with the money on Challenge Tour. So that, that was that was quite. I think to this day that that's uh, that's still my best. Uh, achievement <laughs> that's brilliant yeah no doubt well let's, then, speak, uh, let's speak a little bit more to the european tour now like because i, I yeah. really do feel like it has a much different feel and you've spent time in both places what's most different yeah. or what stands out to you most different not just the golf and the the tournaments that you're playing out but life on european tour as it kind of compares to pga tour well i think it's uh drastically different i mean you've been here over here a few times and, yeah. and you see how I think it's uh, it's much more friendly. It's much more uh, cordial. Everyone seems to be trying to help each other. I would say it's a little bit less of a business, probably. It's more like uh, I think it's a bit more fun over here. We go to dinner quite often with not only Italian players but Spanish players and so on. We play practice round. We play games pretty much every week, and you experience different cultures, different food, different countries. I think, you know, to be honest, the PGA Tour is fantastic, but after a while, if you're not American especially, it can get a little bit lonely, a little bit. Sure. It's the same hotel, it's the same restaurant every week. And, uh, you know, I've, I, I played over there in 2011, and I remember I, I wasn't playing very well, and I remember by, by the U.S. Open time, I, just, I was counting the weeks to go back home. Not because of the, you know, of the PGA Tour itself, but the, the life around. Once, I remember once I got off the golf course, it was like so boring, like the same restaurant, the same hotel, the same menu every night. It brings up an interesting question in my mind. At least I find it interesting. The sea of sameness that you can experience when you're traveling in the same country with the same hotels and the very similar restaurants. Mm -hmm. We'll contrast that against the diversity or the variety that you can experience traveling 
even though it's termed the European tour, it's a worldwide tour, as everyone that follows golf knows that. Uh, the opposite side of that is the variety may provide you opportunity to get caught in some strange or some interesting situations. And as, as I say, strange or interesting situations, is there one particularly that comes to mind in the many years you've been playing on the European tour, the worldwide tour? Uh, well, th there's been a few. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, let me think. Well, there were a few, there were, uh, we went one, we played in China, they must have been eight or 10 years ago. And the, the restaurant in the hotel was shocking, like very, very bad. So we said, right, we go, we're going to take a taxi, go out, go to a McDonald's. I hate McDonald's, but that <laughs> week it was McDonald's, right? So we find this McDonald's and the language barrier was so big that we struggled to order chicken nuggets in a McDonald's <laughs> yes. in China. It took us 15 minutes trying to point at the, yeah, at the screen behind pictures. the counter. And it was like hopeless, hopeless. And then the worst part was that once we got there, we had to go back to the hotel. And none of us knew any not the direction of the hotel, the address. We didn't know where the hotel was. At one point, we were panicking because we were, you know, in Shenzhen, it was yeah. middle of China. Not one guy spoke English. And we had a 15-minute trip back to the hotel. We had to find a taxi, trying to explain to him how to go back to the hotel. It was. I wanted to follow up a little bit on what you said about the, I guess, the diversity. And, and sometimes we talk with players about how those distractions and being able to kind of leave the golf course and separate yourself from that. Do you feel like that's something that helps you from a performance standpoint, from how you play? What are the things that, or do you feel like it's important to leave the golf at the golf course and then be able to fill the rest of that time with, you know, some guys that's Netflix in the, in the hotel room or it's dinner with friends or, or do you feel, do you find yourself going back into golf mode even during the nighttime hours? No, I would say obviously when when you go out to dinner with uh, professional golfers, you're not going to be talking much about you know <laughs> the astronomy or whatever. <laughs> right. it's, it's going to be golf most of the time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, but like by myself when I'm in my hotel room or where I'm you know talking with my wife or with the kids back home, I just try to to avoid golf as much as I can. I just try and you know leave golf at the golf course. And then just do something else, because I think it's uh, you know we spend so much time working on our games, talking about golf with our caddies, with our coaches, with our, our you know the whole of our team, that you need to have some time away from it and just thinking about something else, just to get refocused for the next day. Otherwise, you you know you become fried after a while. Let me toss this one at you. Hopefully we can get inside a little bit of the conversation matter of the subjects that you might discuss when you're at dinners with either your professional colleagues, the players and or the coaches yeah. that are around. What would be the top two or three things that you guys would be chatting about, maybe debating as you're waiting on dinner to be served? Well, I would say between us, like between us, when it, if it's a table of five or six of us professional golfers, there's always someone that says, oh, today I hit a three wood at the, f I think it's a three wood down the f at the first. I think it's a driver. No, I think it's a two iron. The strategy so conversation. Strategy. Oh, that's, that's a, a big topic, especially yeah. lately. We go back to that. <laughs> and then, um, 
So that's one. Well, the other one is uh, someone always starts talking, especially during tournament days, he starts telling you about, oh, today I three-putted 17 from 20 feet, and today I hit it OB. But that's, we now put a fine that if someone starts telling golf stories <laughs> about himself, he pays the dinner. Oh, I love <laughs> so that. That's, that's a good rule. That's gone. I love it. So the last dinner that we had, you shared with me, and I don't know how, you know, this is called Earn Your Edge, where we're trying to share competitive advantages. I'm not sure how much you want to share of this, but we talked at length about kind of how you are maybe taking extra steps to have advantages from a strategic standpoint, or maybe said in a better way, just defining better what your strategy is going to be for a given day based on shot patterns yeah. and and what's what hazards or what's around a green can you speak a little bit give us a preview of your your excel spreadsheet that you showed me yeah so i'm a, i'm a big stat guy obviously and uh, i started doing stats uh, in 2003 so i've got every every single round that i played since 2000, 2003 i've got every single shot written down in this uh, big excel file database and um, I think I I had two major upgrades to it. One was in 2010 when uh, Stroke Game Putting came out. Actually, 2011. It was May 2011. The PGA Tour is uh, Stroke Game Putting only initially. Yeah. And uh, I remember Googling the, you know, looking, looking on Google for the name of the guy who invented the system. I was like, you know, I had been trying to do something similar for years and I couldn't do it. Because I didn't have enough data, and then finding obviously Mark Brody's name and sending him an email, and sure enough, two days later he was down in Lake Nona. We played the golf for a couple of days, and he shared what data he had. That back in back in 2011, it was uh, it was It's pretty much what you can see now, if not more. But imagine, you know, seven eight years ago, it was eye opening. Right. And then he helped me to to upgrade a little bit my my start. A spreadsheet that I had, and then I I've been tracking you know those stats for for years now. And uh, one question that I always had was how I can utilize this best, because I think once you have that much data on yourself on your game, you can there's so many ways you can use it. So up until a year ago, I was only using it to optimize my practice sessions. So every every three months, I would like create a report, have a look at it, see what's going on, what 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 is working, what is not working, and then just say, you know, whatever. I'm losing half a shot of the tea in the last three months, so I'm gonna do something to to address it. But then the fun part became after that became when I started asking the question, well. You know, the first hole tomorrow is it a driver? Is it a three wood? Is it a two iron of the tee? And if it's a driver, where should I be aiming? And uh, uh, I had a good conversation with Scott Fawcett, who invented Decade System, which I think is a is a fantastic tool. It's probably not good enough for for the you know for the pros, or I think it can be improved in some way. But he's done a, he's done a great job. And, uh, you know, based on that, based on Mark Brody's work, I've, I've been developing this other Excel spreadsheet that Corey saw, uh, where I can, the way it works is that pretty much I input how wide is the fairway on a certain hole, 
where are lo the hazards located. So if there's a bunker, if there's a tree, if there's a raft, if there's a water hazard, if there's a water hazard where you drop it, because I mean, you can imagine the 18th hole is sawgrass. If you pull it in the water, you drop it back on the tee. So it's like right. going OB. While the, the what's another hole? The the 13th at Augusta. If you hook it, then you might drop it 200 yards from the green. So that's that's different water hazards. And then uh, I enter my shot pattern, my dispersion, and all of a sudden, through a few millions cells formulas. It spits out where's the optimal aim point for that hole and with what club. So, for example, tomorrow, Valderrama, I know the first hole is a driver and it's five yards inside the left edge of the fairway. Um, and I do the same thing with the, with the shots to the green. So every day, like we get the pin sheet the night before and I just enter the, where the pin is on a certain green. If there's a bunker, water, whatever, on the side, on the left, on the right. And then again, depending how far I am, it's going to take me three yards right, two yards left, and so on. And I think, you know, I, I showed this to Corey. I, I mean, it sounds silly, but one yard here, two yards there, at the end of the round can make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. Massive. You know, people initially, they, they don't believe this, but then when you actually see the numbers, it's like, and if, even if it's only a quarter of a shot per round, I mean, it's, it's one shot per week, which, yeah, sure. you know, last week one shot was, you know, if I, if I shoot one shot higher last week, it was $50,000 less. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. The very formulaic approach that you're describing, how rigidly are you following that and how long have you been rigidly following that versus giving yourself the flexibility to move away from it given certain situations within a round, dependent on maybe how you're feeling or dependent upon where you are in the event for that, for that particular day? Let's start with the second part of the question. Where I am in the event counts for nothing mm -hmm. unless I'm on the 18th hole and I need to make an eagle to be in a playoff. But if I'm, you know, two shots of the lead or two shots uh, in the lead or 10 shots behind, the approach is exactly the same. Mm. Uh, how much do I implement it? It's, uh, it's funny because I started to do it properly in Morocco, which was like about two months ago. Because I was coming through, I was coming from a bad spell of tournaments. I just missed, uh, I think, four or five cuts in a row. Not playing poorly, but just, you know, making silly decisions at the wrong time. So I said, you know, let's try this and let's see what happens. And then I, I made the cut in Morocco and I was doing it approximately like, you know, I knew I had a certain dispersion with a nine iron. I was just trying to pretty much play away from bunkers, play away from water hazards and so on. And then uh, I played decent in Morocco and I thought, oh, maybe, you know, we can, I can do this better and better. So I started doing it off the tee as well and I started combining off the tee and shots into the greens. 
And then, you know, I did it at the British Masters. I did it my last five events. I made five cuts in a row, which I didn't, I didn't make five cuts in a row for, I don't know, two years maybe. Mm-hmm. And I just finished third last week. And, uh, and it seems to have, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how, how much more focus it makes as well. When, when you're trying to go, you know, whatever, four iron, you're going six yards left of the flag. You just pick your spot six yards left and you just go for it. You just forget about the flag, forget about everything. You just freeze up the swing completely and you just try and, and aim for your spots. And sometimes it's so far away from the flag that it's, it's mind boggling. I mean, last week on, this is a good story. Last week on 11, on Sunday, the flag is uh, six yards from the water and I'm hitting a three wood in. So in the morning, I knew that, you know, if I hit a good drive, it's a free wooding and it's water on the right. And the, you know, the software, the green is, is massive, but there's water right, there's nothing left. So the, the spreadsheet is telling me you should aim 15 yards left of the flag. So 21 yards from the water. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> it sounds like a lot. <laughs> but then, massive amount. Yeah. But then, but then I trust it. Then I trust it. So I, got, I get there and uh, sure enough, I got a three wood in onto the 11 and my kid says, right, where, where are we aiming this? And I'm like, well, I'm going 15 yards left of the flag, which is pretty much on the left edge of the green over that bunker. And he goes, well, are we going that far left? And I said, yeah, yeah, we're going straight over that bunker, 15 yards left of the flag. Fine. And I hit this three wood and I hit it on the hill, cutting towards the water and it finished eight feet from the flag. <laughs> and I give him the club back. I give him the club back and he says to me, I'm never going to argue again. <laughs> well, in Excel, we trust is what your caddy then said. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's one thing that I think we bump into a little bit is when we try to tell a player to maybe approach their approach strategy like this, especially a good uh-huh. player. I think the assumption is that you've played golf for a really long time. Intuitively, you're aiming, you know where to aim. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to follow yeah. a spreadsheet because I know where to aim. So one follow-up question that I have with you there is how many times during a round is it actually different than maybe what intuition would tell you otherwise? And I know that may be hard to answer that, but like the occasion on 11 at the BMW, how often does that come up? I would say, I would say quite often, more often than you think. Uh, I would say off the tee especially, I've been hitting, I mean, we played the same courses year in, year out. And off the tee, at least two times per round, I hit a different clubs than anything I've hit before or on a completely different line. So like, you know, give you another example. There's a, I'm not going to mention any names here because it's, this is not sound, <laughs> sure. this doesn't sound good. But recently, let's say recently, there's a par five that there's a 290 yards carry over water. And then from there, there's another carry towards the green over water again. So for me, it would be like a driver just left of the water and then a three wood or a hybrid onto the green, historically, right? And I enter the numbers in the spreadsheet and it says to me, if you can't carry the water, it's a two iron, then it's a layup and then it's a wedge onto the green. And I've, I've always tried in years, I've always tried to go for it in two. And I said, okay, let's, you know, if the spreadsheet says so in Excel, we trust, so on we go. <laughs> so sure enough, we get there and the first day is a little bit into the wind. So no chance to carry the water. And I look at my caddy, we're third off, off the tee. First guy hits a driver. 
is a similar length as I am, hits the driver, pushes it, sure enough, in the water. Second guy hits the driver, hits a massive hook left in the rough. Caddy looks at me, I don't say anything, pick up the two iron, down the left side of the fairway, middle of the fairway, the layup, and we're putting for birdie from 10 feet. Yeah. And he says to me, he says to me, oh, but I never, I never really thought that this hole was a two iron because it's a par five. If you hit a good tee shot, you hit a, you know, a hybrid onto the green. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, when you think in hindsight, when you think about it, I've got a 15, 18 yards wide fairway with driver to hit where the penalty is most likely water on the right or heavy rough on the left. And to get home in two, I had to hit the fairway and then hit another three wood or hybrid over water. And I hit three both shots perfectly or we have a, at least a shot penalty and we're just making a bogey. Yeah, and historically, exactly. I've, I've had so many bogeys on that hole. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Even the times that you it wouldn't change your strategy maybe, which it sounds like there's, a, there's more than you would think, I think what you're kind of alluding to there is that, one, there's a different level of focus that you have when, you're, yeah, when you've mapped it absolutely. out. And then, and then there's the conviction that you're playing with that – there's not any ambiguity to the decisions that you're making. It's almost like if I'm at a blackjack table, this is just what I do. I'm not making any yeah. emotional decisions. I'm, uh, yeah. I've got conviction and trusting in Excel. Yeah. So if I'm listening and someone wants to approach this similar, how do you actually go about yeah. figuring out what those patterns are? Well, uh, two ways, really. One, I have a look at my stats and I see whether I'm better or worse than the PGA Tour average. So I, what I do is I get the, the pattern of the PGA, of a typical PGA Tour Pro, and then I see from my stats whether I'm better, worse, or the same as the average PGA Tour Pro. And then another thing that I look at is my typical miss. So, for example, with driver, I tend to miss more on the right side than on the left side. Right. And so I, I would implement that in the, in the calculations. But, I mean, it sounds, it sounds uh, super science, but... To be honest, it takes me 15 minutes every night to do this. Right. And I just make notes in the yardage book and next day I have a plan. So it's a lot more simpler than, than what you think. It's taken you a whole lot more than 15 minutes to develop the, um, I guess, inventory of shots. Like you said, this is a decades, oh, yes. more, multiple decades long project of bringing all the data together and then using your yeah. Excel spreadsheet and your skills of analysis to help it inf inform or drive your decisions is a really um, interesting, intriguing, and challenging thing for anyone out there. And we had a, a chat many months back with Bryson, Bryson DeChambeau, who many think of Bryson as a player who is analytical. I think he would agree that he is. To yeah. get asked a very similar question relative to Bryson, are you uh, data-driven? Are you data-informed? Uh, or do you take a very data-muted approach as it relates to looking at his stats and then that informing his practice program or his strategy? And we got a surprising response, and that surprising resp response was... He says he pays no attention to the data uh, with respect to either informing his practice or strategy. And I think one of the, the, the challenges that we have, particularly myself as a coach, as an as observer of actual intent, actual execution, meaning the player-owned error versus the entirety of the outcome, which is to some extent sometimes luck-driven, bounce of the ball, rub of the green, so to speak, versus mm -hmm. uh, what actually happens 
it's fairly easy sometimes to look at data and it provides some misinformation. So one of the questions I have for you pertains to how do you separate the signal from the noise? How do you separate within your uh, system of analysis the the error that is you that informs your shot dispersion versus the noise that comes yeah. from? Man, that was just a bad bounce. Well, I, it's very simple, I think. I, I, I don't look at, at stats in the, in the short term. I never look at the stats after one round or even after one event. I just look at stats over big chunks, big period of time. So, you know, I think especially, especially putting can be influenced a lot by, you know, one, one week you make a few 40, 50 footers and that's not really under your control. And all of a sudden you're gaining on the greens. And then the next week, you make every single part inside five, six feet, and you make nothing from 20, 30 feet. And all of a sudden, you probably had a better putting week, but it doesn't show in the stats. But I can promise you that in the, in the long run, the noise is going to go away, and, uh, and you're just going to have good data to, to analyze. And it's the same thing, you know, over one round, you can have, like last week, I had a wedge shot that pitched two yards short and, and spun back into the water, took a gust of wind as well. It was a bit unlucky. And obviously I pretty much lost two shots there with a wedge. Right. But I just know that, you know, within the next four or five weeks, that's probably, I'm probably going to have a wedge that I maybe thin it a bit or I, or I chunk it a bit and it goes stiff mm-hmm. and it evens out in the end. Okay. So I, I think the, the, the only way is not to look at individual rounds or individual tournaments but just take big data and and just look at that look at the big picture a question that goes back to probably the the thread of conversation that we've been on in a while is those conversations you have with players and and this is a subject matter that I wanted to discuss because I think it's important for the, the great majority of the listeners to the podcast are involved in golf at some level and majority of them at a highly competitive level. And that's the subject matter that you may or may not be discussing after rounds of slow play that you've been uh, very outspoken uh, about. Can we, uh, can we discuss that at some length? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, uh, I hate slow play. <laughs> I, I think no. we all do. Yeah. <laughs> I think that where, where we want to take this is it's, it's a real problem. It happens, but what are the yeah. solutions that you guys might discuss that you're, you're a very thoughtful, intellectual yeah. uh, minded individual. I'm sure you've come up with a variety of solutions that we could probably discuss. Yeah. I mean, un- unfortunately there is a, there is no easy solution. Otherwise we would have, uh, we would have gone down that path already. I think uh, there's two issues. I think one issue is that the, the amount of time it takes to play around golf in professional golf. But when you have one, five, six players in the field every week, it's physically impossible that you take less than 445, 450. Because obviously with a, with a 2T start, you're going to end up behind someone and then everything slows down. So the, the, you know, the four hour, three hours, 50 mark that sometimes you hear on Twitter or you hear people muttering about, it's just impossible. It's unreal. So the, the real goal would be 445, 450. But then to achieve that, you have to single out slow players. Because if you have a slow player in the second group of the first, then everyone else behind him is going to be waiting. And the main issue 
I think with slow players, especially with the, I call them professionally slow players, <laughs> is that they take a minute and a half, sometimes even two minutes to play a shot when there's no referee around. And then all of a sudden you lose distance, you're being put on the clock and they speed up and they take 25, 30 seconds. And that's, I see that, to be honest, I see that as borderline cheating. Because it's, it's not fair to your playing partners. It's not fair to everyone playing behind you. It's not fair to the rest of the field. I mean, if you, if you are able to, when there's a referee, if you are able to hit a shot in 25, 30 seconds, then I cannot understand why you wouldn't be doing it every single shot. And, you know, I can understand. I mean, it can happen once or twice. You're in the lead on Sunday, coming down the stretch. There's a, a shot where you don't know where the wind is. I can understand you. Take, you can take a minute, a minute and a half. I mean, everyone did it at some point in their career. Mm-hmm. But when it happens on, on a Thursday morning after three holes with, without a breath of wind and you're the last guy to hit a shot into the green and you... You know, it's your turn to play and you take your yardage book out of the pocket to start getting your number. That just drives me nuts. Yeah. No, I, I can appreciate that. There are certainly situations where there are extenuating circumstances, but yeah, collectively to do it on a habitual basis is a... So far, so far, I've just complained. So let me, let me provide the, the solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I think the, the solution would be to make it much more likely to have a shot penalty for a slow player. Because with, with the current system, it's, it's too much down the line because you have to lose uh, distance from the group in front. Then you start to get, you, you, you get put on the clock. Then you get a bad time and then you get a short penalty. But to get all the way to the short penalty is impossible. So I think in some way or form, they need to make sure that if you're slow, you're scared of getting a short penalty. Otherwise, at the moment, I mean, if I'm a slow player, at the moment, I'm paying three thousand pounds or dollars or five thousand dollars, whatever it is, on the on the PGA Tour at my second bedtime. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a guy earning a million euro, two million dollars, I mean, you can imagine what's the uh, you know what's the actual influence of a three thousand pounds fine or five thousand dollars fine? Nothing. Or I, 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 I mean, some guy. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I mean, I mean I'm gonna. This is going to be, this is going to cause a debate. But unfortunately, some slow guys see that as an investment. Right, they see, exactly. they say, right, I'm going to, I'm going to pay so much money in fines this year, but I'm going to play slow the whole year because I'm going to, I'm going to play better. And that's, I think that's the sad part of the story because you, you know, it means there is no incentive to play quicker. Yeah. So staying on the solution oriented kind of path here. It sounds inevitable because yeah. it is so prevalent that you are going to encounter it. What yeah. will you do to cope with, with slow play so that it's not something that affects your performance? Well, I, I, will, I would simply, uh, if I'm playing with a slow player, right, know, yeah. uh, I just have long chats with my kid about <laughs> something else. We will, talk about, <laughs> we will talk about football. Yeah, so a little distraction until it's time to go. Okay. The challenges of competing at a high level in any sport um, come with it, the need to develop a set of physical skills to navigate your sport, but also a set of psychological skills to navigate the peaks and troughs in performance. And the question I want to ask in like on, on surface is 
how do you deal with pressure? How do you uh, try and find that state of uh, high confidence where you're going to play your best? And and maybe inside of this, can you unpack how much of your crazy, your insane memory, your ability to recall a deck of cards might uh, amplify your ability to recall past situations as a benefit to handling pressure and in dealing with ebbs and flows and confidence. Yeah, I think uh, I mean as you as you said in your question, the the trick to pressure is just uh, focusing on your routine, on your experiences in the past in the same situation. Those are all things that are going to help massively. And uh, you know, there's a few guys that meditate as well. I think that's that's really, really helpful because it helps you to understand, you know, staying in the present, staying in the moment and, uh, you know, just focusing on the, I call them focusing on the controllables. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it's, if there's a spike, well, spike mark now you can tap it down, but if your ball hits something or you have a bad bounce or whatever, you cannot control that. But what you can control is your own routine, your own breathing and your own thoughts. And as long as you stay focused in that part of the process, I think, you know, you even, you even forget pressure. It's actually, it's actually more fun to try and, and stay focused on those things under pressure than when I'm playing out with friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we should point all the listeners to search the YouTube video where you're, how long did they give you to look at the deck of cards? <laughs> Uh, five minutes. Yeah. Okay. So looks at a deck of cards for five minutes and then recalls all 52 cards, the number and suit. And I'm pretty sure like if I ask you what shot you hit at Valderrama in 2006 on Thursday on number 14, like you could tell me pretty quickly. Isn't that right? Yeah, probably. But I think that's, that's common to most golfers. I think in, you know, in golf, you remember a lot of the shots you hit. I would say, you know, if, if I ask you guys, what shot did you hit? You know, two years ago at the U.S. Open local qualifier on the second hole, you probably remember. Corey's answer is it was a bad shot. Oh, goodness gracious. It's <laughs> <laughs> not true. Sorry, I like to get my digs in when we're around each other. I apologize. Yeah. apologize to all the listeners there as well. You just mentioned a phrase, common to all golfers. I want to unpack the opposite, the antithesis of that. What's uncommon to all golfers at the highest level? And maybe a better way to ask it is you've spent time in the top 25 golfers in the world. You've won events. Mm -hmm. You've played on Ryder Cups. When the best players in the world are playing at their best, what's different about that 1% versus those that are challenged to make it on tour or challenged to become a great college player perhaps? I think in the moment, like when, when you're playing well, it's everyone is, is kind of doing the same things and, and thinking the same things. I think the, the best players in the world have a, a very clear blueprint. They have a roadmap. They have a, a path that they follow and they keep doing the same things day in, day out. You know, the best example I think would be, would be Tiger with his putting. I mean, I've seen Tiger play golf for 20 something years now. And I mean, Cameron, you two have seen him as well. And he does the exact same drill that he used to do 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he would stick two tee pegs in the ground and part one-handed from five feet. That's his drill. And then you see with the same pattern, it never cha- pretty much never changes pattern, never changed anything at all. Never changed his grip, never changed anything. And then you see the worst patterns on the PGA Tour. They have probably a new pattern every week. They have a new putting coach every two months. 
they have a, a new routine every two months. And I mean, I, I was, you know, I was uh, guilty myself of that because obviously when, when you're not playing well and desperate trying to find a solution, you just hope that one day, you know, someone is going to come in and tell you, oh, just put your right hand more on top and, and that's it. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, I think the, the best players in the world are the guys who were most consistent throughout their career in their practice, in, in their workout. You know, they, I mean, you, you see them, I mean, Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia, I mean, my brother, DJ, I mean, they, they are swinging in the exact same way when they first came out on tour. Maybe they improved little, little things, but they never really made big changes to, to their swing, to their golf game, to the way they play golf. And, you know, some other guys, they, they, they just, to try and get better, they try to, to change too much and all of a sudden you get lost and then it's a, it's a long way back. Just to kind of go back to something that you brought up there that we've talked about in the conversation before is like, it's inevitable that form or that performance is going to ebb and flow over the course of a long career. And you spoke to that. You've got a nice little stretch of events here. You've had a good season. You've got some good momentum going. Mm -hmm. If in a few weeks that momentum ends somehow and you, there's a period of time where you're, you don't have the same kind of ball control, but yet recognize the importance of consistency. What, what do you go to? What do you do? What is your strategy for getting it back when that happens then? Well, I, I, I just go back to the same drills that I was doing uh, that I'm doing right now to the same swing thoughts, to the same, um, same goal that, that I'm trying to get in, in my swing. And I mean, you, you cannot, you, you're not going to find a solution. I think it's very difficult to find a solution if you're looking for something new. Right. I think you have to go back to what worked in the past. I like to keep a diary as well of my swing thoughts, my swing feelings, how I'm playing. And then when I'm, when I'm playing poorly, I just go back to that and, you know, have a look, whatever. A yeah. year ago, I played well. I was, I had a, a good run of events. And what, what was I doing? And I can promise you, anytime in my career I played well, I had pretty much the exact same swing thought, the exact shot pattern, the exact drills on the range. Everything was the same. And then for whatever reason, you see a guy on Instagram doing silly things and say, oh, let's, let's try this. Yeah. Good luck. Is that guy me? Am I the guy doing silly things on Instagram? Yeah, You're like, you're going to try that and it doesn't work. I like your drills though. I, I copied it. a couple of your drills. I love them. You're beautiful. All right. So, so we, we made it through kind of the hard part of our talk and now we have kind of some quick hitting questions here that should, yeah. and they certainly can take, take the form of longer answers, but there's a few questions that we like to ask a lot of our guests here, and I'm going to ask a, a little bit different one for you to start us out with. What is the worst strategy mistake that you see really good players, the best players in the world make? Because I know that that's another topic of conversation at dinner as I've, as I've sat and experienced it, that oh, yeah. still the best players yeah. in the world that are still doing some silly things on the golf course sometimes. So what's the most common or most egregious error that you see? Uh, it's uh, being too aggressive and overconfident, both off the tee or going into flags. Tell me the best piece of advice you've received from another player that's helped you perform better. I received a great advice from Paul McGinley. Uh, I was about to turn pro. I was still an amateur and I played a European tour event. 
and we played together. And at the end of the round, he said to me, Eduardo, just don't try and change anything in what you're doing. Just try and improve a little bit of time what you are doing. And that was, a, I think, a fantastic piece of advice. How about when you get off to a really poor start to a round? What's the mindset to get mm -hmm. back on track? It happened to me last week. I think on, on Saturday was a three over after four. And I just said to Andy, I'm, I'm hitting the ball quite, Andy's my caddy. And I said to Andy, I'm on the 50 with a chat, and I said, I'm hitting the ball quite good. I'm, I'm putting okay. There's a lot of chances on this golf course. We got a great strategy going as well. Let's just see, see what happens from, from here in. Maybe, you know, maybe we just had two bogeys, two, three bogeys in the beginning and, and let's see it for the rest of the day. And that was it. I ended up shooting one under on Saturday, which was a, a good comeback after being three over after four. How does that contrast against your attitude or mindset when you've got a low round going? When you have a good round going, you have to be mad enough to think that that's going to be the best round of your career. <laughs> so you just keep, you simply cheat the system. You know, you get off to a bad start. You said, you said, okay, I have my two bogeys of the day. I've already had them and now it's all birdies from here in. And then... It's the opposite when, when you play well. When you play well, you get off to a bad, to a good start, and then you say, oh, I'm just keep making birdies today. Okay, N next one is the concept or the idea of swing feel versus technical thought. And I think that you're a good person to ask this question to because you know you have an engineering degree. We've spent a lot of time, more time than talking about Excel spreadsheets than we've talked uh, ever on this podcast mm -hmm. before. So talk to me about kind of the relationship that you have with like a feel, a sensation versus a technical thought and maybe how you marry those out on the golf course while you're performing. Yeah, well, uh, I would say a technical thought. I use them a lot in my practice sessions away from events to try and, you know, make my swing better or, or more functional. But then when I'm at events, I mean, Corey, you've, you've seen him a few times. I love to just go out on the course and, and play the course and, and just play golf. So, you know, I, you, you hardly ever see me on the range at an event. You, you'll find me on the golf course most likely. I like to, to play as many holes as I can in the, in the practice days and get a feel for the course, get a feel for the swing. And just, again, find the one very simple swing feel that, that works and, and just go with it. This might be a little bit, uh, a question that requires a little bit longer response than call, to, to, to call it a quick hitter. But what's the, what's the advice that you would give the 13 year old version yourself? Uh, and I think, think about the athletes that you have that you're able to mentor either directly or through your coaches back at your uh, academy back in Italy. I would say be patient with yourself. And I would say, go to the gym and try to hit the ball as long as you can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the way forward, right? Hit it further. Yeah. That kind of hits our, the, our big questions right there. And you've been very generous with your time. You've got a nice little stretch of events, and we're going to continue to follow. For the listeners that want to follow along, where would they find you on social or anywhere else? Uh, social media, you find me at uh, Dodo Molinari. Uh, both on Twitter and Instagram. How about your academy? Before we let you go, I want uh, you to just tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about the academy that you have there that you opened uh, here within the last year or so. Yeah, I opened uh, this golf academy at the beginning of this season. Uh, I had a, a great opportunity at the Premier Golf Club right where I live. And, uh, and so I wanted to start to give back to, especially to junior golfers and, and kids growing up try to make them play better and enjoy this game a little bit more. So 
we pretty much uh, did something that you know stands out in Italy a little bit because we we completely redid the range, the shore game area, putting green. We have a putting studio, uh, swing studios. Uh, I mean, the, the facilities are are fantastic. And uh, and then the other thing that I did, I, I selected four young coaches, and every year I send them some. I mean, one day I send them to you as well. Yeah, just to really, shadow, to yeah. see, see what you're doing, and, and just learn. Yeah, because I think the the best way is just to to copy, you know, other people that have great success, mm-hmm. and then just experience what what works in 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 this wonderful sport, and and try and teach it to the kids. Yeah, do you feel like there's a real momentum with where golf is in Italy? With you know, you've got obviously you and your brother who have the profile that you that you have and have had for a long period of time, and then you've got. You know, Andrea winning yesterday. You've got Guido, who's won a couple times this year. Do you feel momentum, a shift? And obviously, you've got a Ryder Cup here coming here pretty soon. An, an excitement for golf in Italy? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a big momentum in this time, in this period of time. Uh, I think what Francesco did last year was uh, was unbelievable. And I think it kind of inspired Guido, Andrea, even myself. I mean, when I see Francesco in the top 10 in the world, it's like, you know, I, I was I was nearly there a few years ago, so I, I'm able to to play that kind of golf. I want to go back there, and uh, it just uh, you know it's it's amazing when when one player like that does what Francesco did last year. All of a sudden, everyone wants to play better, and I think everyone else is uh, is just um, benefiting from that. Yeah, well, beautiful. Well, I know that a lot of the people that are listening and finding out a little bit more about you are going to be cheering hard for you in the coming weeks. And I'll, uh, I'll look forward to a dinner at the Scottish open. Maybe we are definitely, definitely. Okay. We, we, I know what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Okay, man. Well, thank you very much. We'll see you here in a few weeks. Thank you guys. I hope to see you both at the open. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.